edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. You know, like a lot of writers, uh, nonfiction writers, I dream of writing a fiction book. Um, I'm not a, a terribly adept storyteller. I don't tend to think in terms of uh, stories and, and narratives as much as ideas and environments uh, and, and uh, concepts. But I still kind of feel like it, it's going to be, I'm going to be disappointed with myself if I don't try to squeeze out a fiction one of these days. I, I like the idea of like the writer as a sort of uh, Swiss army knife who can do different kinds of things. And I've done rock criticism and cultural journalism and technology journalism and you know, I wrote a PhD, and I wrote a rock opera, and I wrote some poetry back in the day. And so I like the idea that at some point I try to write some fiction. But, you know, it's it's a little tough because I'd have to get a story from somewhere because, as I said, I'm not a natural storyteller. And one of the things people do who write fictions is, of course, you know, steal the stories of their own lives, which in my case are only so interesting because, again, I don't really remember them that well. A lot of my friends remember incidents in my life better than I do. Um, which is maybe one of the reasons I stay close to, uh, to my friends over time. Uh, but another thing you do is you can steal your friends' stories. And if I was going to steal somebody's story and write it, not as if it was my personal story, but write it as a fiction or use it as the basis for a fiction, I would steal my friend Naropa Sabine's story. Um, let's see, I met Naropa in the early 2000s, I think, and uh, we immediately started talking about Moby Dick, and we, we had that sort of mutual intoxication along with my, my wife, Jennifer, where you're, you're talking in, in this way where you just kind of get higher and higher. And he came back to our uh, apartment, and we talked for like three, talked and, and drank alternately alcohol and caffeine for like three days. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was quite exhilarating and quite fun. And he, he knew people that I'd known stretching way back to mysterious freak scenes in, uh, of all places, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, and so I, I, uh, I've been enjoying having friends on the, on the show and talking about their life experiences and uh, enjoying the, the long-running conversations that we've, uh, we've had for so, for so long. It's such a rich part of my life. And so I, I decided to ask Noropon to come on and talk about his story. And the only real setup I think we need to have is that you hear this name, Naropa, and you think two things. One, he he changed his name because he's some kind of, you know, yogi, wannabe mystic, uh, peaceful warrior thing, you know. Uh, I, speaking of peaceful warrior, I went to a Michael Pollan uh, talk last night. Uh, his, his new book, How to Change Your Mind, big book on psychedelics. It's going to change the whole discourse, New York Times, the whole thing. Like the the, sh the, the shark has definitively jumped. Uh, but he's a great guy. I really like Michael a lot. And, and at the end, somebody asked a question. And the, the guy said that it was hilarious because Michael's, Michael's pretty kind of, you know, straight guy, you know, New York Times kind of guy, you know, interested in psychedelics, but you know, he's got his feet on the ground. And then he got these totally whack job, classic psychedelic whack job questions. And one of them was this guy who said that he thought psychedelic. Let me get, see if I get it right. Psychedelics were the samurai sword of the peaceful warrior. <laughs> so, <laughs> in any case, I don't know why that that stuck in my mind. So, uh, the peaceful warrior. But so you thought Naropa might be one of those guys, but but no, Naropa was named by his parents, and not just any old weird hippie commune parents who named their parent, you know, their kids like Sunshine or 
you know, mulch or something like that. Uh, Naropa uh, uh, came into this uh, earth as the child of a bona fide guru. And that is the story that we're going to hear about today. So, Naropa, thanks so much for joining me uh, on Expanding Mind. It's a pleasure. Great to be here. So, Naropa, one thing that's always, I always imagine when I imagine the story in my head, because I often kind of run it as a sort of film, uh, is that moment in your young life when you realize that the situation that you're living in with the guru dad, you're in an ashram, there's, you know, Hindu religiosity everywhere, was not uh, the conventional lifestyle where you were, which, again, wasn't even California or, or even Colorado, but uh, rural Tennessee. So that must have been an interesting uh, awakening. Uh, yeah, that's putting it mildly. I mean, <laughs> retrospectively, I've had opportunity to really sit with the, the the sort of cultural divide that I had to navigate, which I think was pretty, uh, uh, what would I say? It's It was uh, significant in determining, you know, the shape of my character, who I became. And basically what I was dealing with was an incredibly rural circumstance, so much so that it was roughly 35 40 miles to the nearest small town Sevierville in uh, Tennessee and we had purchased or rather my father had purchased this land uh, that was incredibly fertile uh, outrageously beautiful and just literally in the middle of the mountains and uh you know, moved us there basically with, you know, uh, just a little bit of cash and a couple seeds and his ideological crusade or his uh, system that we were all sort of a part of. And uh, in any case, the point of that being in, in the midst of that, my brother and I were attending public school. So a grammar school in Tennessee initially, and I later went to high school there as well. Uh, in the grammar school, I think it most had, I think, 60 kids, 80 kids at most. And it was there that I first began to understand that, uh, you know, what my home, what was happening at home in no way related to the dominant cultural concerns like you you talk about maybe california or coastal areas or more progressive um, parts of the country may have had uh, you know been more sympathetic to what we were doing but i had experiences where literally people asked me what you know i said i was a vegetarian and people did not know what the word meant and then when i explained that that, that meant i didn't eat meat then the next question inevitably was but why it was so it was inconceivable so that you had that there was the vegetarianism there was you know the the daily rituals and practice meditation the ritualistic acts aspects the the chanting so that was going on daily the the uh fire ceremonies on the weekends i mean the entire uh, 
structure at home revolved around these practices. And then off we went to school. Uh, <laughs> and then there was no traction. I mean, it was just a sort of divide uh, in which, you know, things were just swallowed. There was no connective tissue. Um, so as you can imagine, that was, uh, that was some difficult terrain, especially into high school. And at that age where you're trying to, you're already on a slippery slope in trying to, to, to develop a cohesive identity at that age, you're, I think, much more acutely aware of the, uh, you know, what your peers think and, and societal pressures to sort of conform. And, and uh, I had a number of tactics to, <laughs> to uh, do the best I could, but uh, it, it was a lonely road for uh, most of those formative years, frankly. So, so how old were you when, you when you guys moved to the, to the ashram? Uh, well, let's see, that would be seventh, eighth grade. I think somewhere, maybe what, 11, 12, right. somewhere right in there. And we had, prior to that, we had been moving a lot uh, and had spent time in, in different ashrams and, and in uh, a lot of, uh, you know, as a peripatetic lifestyle. And I think partially due to my father's relationship to his different teachers and, and then, um, at some point, I think he was uh, ready to to embark on his own uh, attempt to create this this community. I think he'd been authorized at that point by um, his teachers to make that move. So that's what led to this move to rural Tennessee, and was <clears throat> literally based on seeing an ad in a paper, as I recall. You know, and he pretty much got it sight unseen. I think he said he had a dream, which also, back to the name, apparently uh, that was also a part in how I received my name was there was a dream involved. And uh, but he was also in Boulder around 72, which is where I was born. So I don't know how directly his relationship to Trungpa affected that decision or if he was just in the it was in the milieu or the zeitgeist, you know? Yeah. Well, well, I, th- I, I want to come back, of course, you, to your experiences, but I think it'd be good to give a little backstory on, on your dad, on, on Shankaracharya, as he came to be known, and what the sort of spiritual scene was. I mean, his, his was kind of a classic 60s tale of a, of a freak who finds sort of Eastern religion and then dives right in. Um, but it, I think it'd be great to just hear a little bit more about his story and then the particular tradition uh, that he got hooked up with and, and empowered within. Sure. He, uh, my understanding is, um, and as I recall, we moved through a number of ashrams in those early years, as I mentioned, uh, he was a student of uh, Muktananda and we went to India um, and stayed in Muktananda's ashram there. And then he was running a center for Muktananda at different points. And then he became involved. There was a while with uh, Keshava Das. There was a stretch. Um, I think, well, the primary relationship he had was with uh, Dhyan Yogi Mahasudan Das, who 
was a Shaktipat teacher and we stayed and helped run his ashram in Soquel uh, in, in California. And that was a, I know, a very significant part of his, his practice. And then he also worked with uh, a kind of cave yogi in Kalu Valley uh, and still has a relationship with him and helped actually finance a temple there. So those were the primary relationships. And it, as you said, it is very much a tale of, of that era. There was, he had been involved in um, uh, the, the psychedelic movement in a pretty fundamental role, as I understand, uh, you know, in, in, in as much as the belief was that LSD was you know, the Holy Grail, it was the, it was the thing that was going to change the world. So in his version of the events, you know, there was a pretty profound and visceral idealism in their relationship to uh, LSD specifically. And I know that was the center of his life for a while. And he had friends that were you know, did time that we would visit early on. And uh, my understanding is at some point he had teacher, I think it was specifically Muktananda, who somehow in knew intuitively that he had a certain number of hits on him at the time and told him it was time to leave that life behind and move more into the spiritual practice and tradition. And then soon after there was a lab explosion in which he was burned severely and thrown into a lake uh, and had an out-of-body experience during which time a voice essentially instructed him to go to India. Uh, and as I understand it, that was the main kind of um, you know, the, 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 that's when the other path, that's when he took that road. Uh, you know, I never saw him drink a glass of wine or smoke a joint or, you know, really imbibe any, any stimulants from, you know, throughout my entire life, throughout my childhood. But apparently prior to that, it was when he, you know, he was more involved in that drug culture. And then there was a clean break. Yeah, and then he moves on to you know a particular flavor of uh, of Hindu spirituality. You know, when we when we just throw out a guru name, if you don't actually, if you know, if you don't know the playbook and it's just a guru name, you know, you can get a certain image of a you know wise old man with a beard and doing yoga and meditating and things like that. But the Shaktipat tradition that that was the the central. Uh, current that he picked up on and that he continues to transmit is a very particular flavor. Uh, I think probably Muktananda was the most famous teacher in the West who is associated uh, with this tradition. And since it, it has so much to do not only with the particular character of the religious vision, but also like the the body and energy and and eroticism and power, like these very concrete, quote unquote, tantric forces are at the core of this current and I see them also in you in very interesting ways as you've you know come from this background gone through your own search your own evolution your own you know becoming your own singularity 
there's still this this sense that there's something very powerful in that tradition. And, my, and, the, and personally, the way that I've touched in it, which is very few times going to some Mukdananda centers when I was in high school, my aunt was a follower of, of Mukdananda. And indeed, when I finally met Shankaracharya, there was a similar kind of almost reminiscent charge that I could sort of tap into, if you will. Um, so I'd like to love to hear you talk about how you came to understand what that tradition was about, and particularly its its teachings on the the power on power and energy and the body and and the way that that you know kind of informed the way you were what you were doing as a kid, like the the, the sadhana, the practices, the breath work, the the chants, the fire ceremonies. There was something happening to you internally as well that that to my mind is is highlighted by this particularly kind of energy rich tantric tradition. Yeah. Uh, let's see. The, it's a strange story in that uh, I think that throughout my childhood and well into my mid-20s, uh, it, you know, it was, it was the backdrop, the ba- I'm sorry, the backdrop, the background backdrop for my life. I didn't have any distance and not so much distance but I think that throughout the the childhood practices I wasn't having um what I would call direct uh stirrings of kundalini or or experiences um that were were visibly uh were visible evidence of of these processes so and I think that also was a shift in the tone of the ashram itself which developed later on in the the Nashville years where I think a lot more um, people in the ashram started having much more uh, uh, intense um, traditional Shaktipat awakenings. So I guess my point being that throughout my childhood, it was like, you know, you get up, you meditate, you're doing a lot of these mantras, you're doing Hanuman Chalises, you're doing 108 names of Durga. So these practices were just a sort of daily routine that were normalized. Uh, And so, you know, I knew that they were outside the cultural norms, but in terms of my own experience, they had yet to really you know, affect my sense of self or call into question, you know, my, my sort of uh, basic experience of reality, I suppose. And uh, so oddly enough, I came back full circle to the ashram later on, uh, you know, after art school and travel and you know, a whole, a whole host of, of different lives. And, and well, I re- before you say, talk about coming back. So you, 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 you know, you grow up there, you go to high school. It's kind of a, as you say, there's a, there's an element of the ordinary to the practices. And then you go away, you go to art school, you're your own, you know, creative freak and moving through, you know, weird scenes. When you, when you first went away, how much of, how much of the, the, the religious life of the ashram, ideas, practices, 
forms of experience. How much of that did you take with you when you went on your when you you know you went to art school and and stepped away from the scene for a period of time? Were you were you kind of rejecting it? Did you just let it go? Did it stay with you? Uh, I think it was fundamentally hardwired into my worldview. Um, that's a, that's a difficult question. Uh, you know, I, I, it's like I was coming from so far outside the box that I think a lot of those years were actually devoted to uh, a sort of process of being able to assimilate or to find um, to find uh, to, to 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 be able to kind of become a chameleon and move into these other worlds from which I had been excluded um, by choice sometimes but also just by circumstance so it was my my you know a lot of those years were you know spent in in cities in different scenes uh and so in terms of how i wasn't at that point continuing the practices uh that characterized my childhood um, but i do think that there was a sort of basic presumption in uh, you know how I approach life that that was very much tied to uh, obviously to to those formative years um, in terms of like my sexual politics in terms of my um, perspective on on power dynamics um, well, well say, say a little bit about that like what what would be those either the sexual politics or the power dynamics or they're probably related even uh what do you think was informed by this this experience growing up well i i think that first off i mean frankly i was as close to being a, a feral uh you know teenager as you can get and also i skipped my senior year of high school and then was off to art school so right out of the gate art school, and especially at the time in Memphis, you know, it turns out after the fact that recently I spoke to the president of the art school in New York, and he basically, I just assumed that art school was the, you know, was the, the thumbs up for continuing a process of sort of uh, radical experimentation. And we just pushed every conceivable limit that we could Frankly, it was an anarchist experiment. It turns out culturally, that's that was, I think, uh, something that was happening in the Deep South at the time, which was, you know, there were, if you were at all uh, out of the ordinary, you sort of ended up in a, a in a, a group that was had a in pretty intense solidarity. The dominant culture, you know, it's funny. It was sort of a continuation of coming of age in the South, but in art school it solidified and gave me traction where for the first time I found like-minded people uh, in in as much as it was a, a joy in the experimentation and an embrace of being other or being peripheral or being um, 
you, you know, finding uh, voices of outrage or reactionary voices. And uh, so that, that, that existed. And, and let's see, to, to trace it back to my relationship to, to, well, sexual politics, it was just, as I said, it was so feral, meaning like I literally grew up in the mountains playing with goats. And I just had a, a sort of a, a sensitive anything goes like pleasure. I became just a unapologetic hedonist. I mean, it was just, let's try this. Let's try that. If you're accommodating and I didn't really have the same scruples or the same, I think repression or a Protestant kind of conservatism. And that was mirrored in, in some of my closest friends. Um, they were looking to break with their, past. And it's funny because actually my father ultimately was fairly conservative in those regards. But I think that the, the teachings that, that I, that, that, that sort of uh, limbed my identity had within them a kind of radical uh, acceptance of, a, you know, of, of, of a accommodation in the, in the process of, of actualizing self and the search for, for meaning. So I kind of felt like I had a thumbs up for whatever goes, you know? So you had, you had a number of, of years of, of art school and spent time traveling New York, you know, love affairs, crashing and burning, all this kind of thing. What, what yeah. was happening in your life that led you to return to the ashram? Uh, I had, at that time, I had come from New York City uh, back to Nashville. Uh, my world had collapsed in many regards. The relationship had gone south. Uh, basically, all of my artwork and journals were stolen in a tawdry tale that I still uh, I still have moments when I reflect on that where it seems inconceivable. I mean, to, to I, I essentially had the identity I had carefully constructed completely erased in terms of my work. So that sort of set the stage for a return to the ashram uh, that had, uh, had relocated to the suburbs of Nashville by that point. And there was a woman there who was my father's main disciple at that point, um, this incredibly beautiful woman uh, who became a seminal figure in what became a period during which um, I had basically kind of came to the end of that chapter. And when I see that, I think <clears throat> um, what I would say is, so, and, and let me, let me set the stage a little in that my father had left for India. So that's an interesting aspect to this story as well. So my father went to India, leaving her in charge. I had come to the end of my rope, so to speak, and also had, you know, flirting with various drug habits and really had pushed the envelope as far as you can before, you, you know, before something breaks. And so I sort of licked my wounds, returned to the ashram, started you know, uh, doing some of the practices that were incredibly familiar, obviously, by that point, it was like kind of return home to some degree. But 
sharing those with uh, Kai, this woman who was also having pretty profound and visible Shakti experiences. So she was there and I started, you know, return to these practices and then uh, consequently had a radical, oh, let me uh, turn that decline, um, had a, a very specific experience that I think was a turning point in, you know, in the story uh, up to that moment. Um, so, and then, you know, that was basically after, I don't know, a certain amount of time of being there, there was an evening in which we were in the small room uh, where my father did a lot of very specific and focused practice. So it was a, a shrine room there's the main shrine room and then there's another small room that's just devoted exclusively to anustans to very focused worship and so we were in there and she was in a state of uh you know possession or pure uh trant pure translation. I mean, she was literally, she would go into these states where it was as if, you know, a thousand bowl watts of pure electricity were just radiating, just whiplashing through her body, which she was essentially sitting on me and in this state and just pounding my chest with the peacock feathers that my father usually used in Shaktipat transmissions. And at that moment, uh, something broke within me and broke, you know, symbolically, metaphorically, not as if she broke <laughs> a bone, but uh, something broke. And essentially, it, what felt like, I think, 100,000 years of dross came flooding out. I mean, you could call it perhaps the, you know, in, in those traditions, the, the, the serpent awakens, the kundalini awakens and begins the, uh, the, 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 the movement up the spine. And so it's either like, you know, the, the, the base chakra, you know, there, there's a sort of um, moment where the Shakti is awakened. And I feel like there were moments prior to that throughout my childhood where I definitely felt the sort of stirrings of energy, a tightening in the, the neck and a quality of, you know, my breath seeming to take on its own, its own logic um, that had nothing to do with, with, you know, my will, so to speak. But from that point on, that led to uh, a period in which essentially I completely uh, checked out of <clears throat> the world and by that, I mean, I stopped reading newspapers. And, you know, by that point, I had spent enough time in, in cities and in, in the culture. I was, you know, a budding cinephile and fairly well-read and, you know, and had, had a love of literature and, and being a part of the, the underworld and the underground and, and those literary canons and those, those arenas. And uh, at that point, um, I everything uh, sort of fell away. So I stopped 
reading, I stop uh, watching f television or film or newspaper, like everything winnowed down to delivering organic groceries once a week to make a little bit of money for food and then just these um, spiritual practices, you know, and, and, and after that first break, there was probably a good month and a half in which I think I slept maybe, you know, two hours a night. And, uh, and what was happening was the, this energy that was awakened. So I was also having uh, a physical relationship with Kai. So it was kind of a pretty remarkable, bizarre period. There was that aspect coupled with I mean, essentially, the days would consist of meditation, chanting, and then the energy would start moving in my body, and then it would lead to kriyas, or these kind of spontaneous yogic postures and, and vocalizations that could be any, anything from a high-pitched, keening kind of sound that I, I could feel vibrationally kind of floating in parts of my body to a sort of grotesque, uh, you know, guttural, um, uh, 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 what's the term for glossalia, you know. Um, so it was just from day to day, the experiences were, were so um, gripping. And so it just swallowed, it essentially swallowed my life. And you know, I was incredibly sensitive to to tone, to other people's uh, effect. So I just cut it all out and kind of wiped the slate clean, I guess you could say. Uh, and so that became a sort of turning point in my life. What, what, one question about like how your relationships that you were also involved with 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 Kai physically. Right. Whether like there was another part of your relationship that was kind of like, you know, getting to know each other, sharing your hopes and fears, or whether like even the, the sort of relationship side of it was kind of subsumed by these larger energy forces yeah. and practices and such. Yeah, with, without a doubt. I mean, at that point, she was 100% uh, uh, devoted to my father and to these practices. So interpersonal dynamics were without a doubt, second fiddle, uh, you know, and um, that was, I mean, the, the thing that we were doing with each other was like sort of, you know, it's what Kabir called the spiritual athleticism. It was like, I mean, well, maybe more within the ashram itself, but it was like people, the, the more, mantras you did the cleaner the whistle the you know the the, the deeper the de dedication the more perfect the devotee those were the you know those were the, the the things that were driving our relationship in that period you know and and it wasn't even there was no real difficulty this is the other strange part of that period was it wasn't as if there was uh there was no, you know, you, people try to quit smoking or they try to change their life or, you know, there's this sort of uh, imposition of the will, 
the thing that was so remarkable remarkable about this period was there was no will on my part. It was a sort of surrender and then a engagement that was so, I was so gripped by what was happening that things sort of naturally fell away. And then ultimately when that shifted, you know, that, that became the next chapter of my life when what sort of emerged from that, that period there's sort of more of an organic impulse and even changed my relationship to the arts and into, you know, the nature of my desire. And because ultimately Kai and I ended up leaving that circumstance and of all things moving in back to Hollywood. So, I mean, well, before, before we get to that, cause I want to talk about all that stuff, but, but, you know, of course one has to rest a bit with, with the father sure. and right. you haven't talked very much about, about your relationship with your father, let's say up to the point where he's gone to India and, and you, you start having these transformations with Kai, what is your relationship like? How does it compare to what you would come to learn, you know, other people's relationships with their fathers were like? Was it, was it distant? Was it uh, respectful? Was it weird? Uh, what, what was that, that, that like in, in your, you know, in your teens and, and early 20s? Uh distant uh i that when you said distant i mean it it rang a bell there was a definitely a there was respect there was i only realized after the fact how there was a kind of um the distance isn't the word it felt his, and this is when you were asking about my relationship with Kai at the time, there was a quality to my father where his, where in his path, his devotion to his teachers, to his spiritual tradition uh, eclipsed all other concerns. And that was never... Uh, thrown into question and that coupled with uh a distance like he wasn't a, an affectionate man in fact i i don't actually remember ever having like physical contact with him frankly i mean maybe once or twice so i think he played the role of father in as much as he provided shelter and food and there was also but i think there was a quality uh in which we were the this sort of first run for him becoming a teacher we were students and disciples or devotees as much as we were his children i suppose so but when you got older i mean by the time you had left right. home like did you think about him as a as a as a guru as he was he like was he a special person who had something that other people didn't didn't have or could you not quite ever buy that that story um i hadn't you know the jury was still out so i knew that you know and as a child, when I was in the, the period or maybe late teens, I would just lie about what my father did 
So, you know, in, in various circumstances, you know, I would invent a life for myself uh, in which he was an architect or this or that, because it was just, I, I didn't quite even then know how to explain what he was. So, um, as I said, there was a, you know, it's, 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 there's a whole aspect of the story of his relationship to my brother. They were much closer. I generally, you know, was a mamoni. I was the mama's boy. And, and then ultimately my brother and he had some difficulties that precipitated a really definitive break. And somehow soon thereafter, there was a tolerance, there was a mutual regard, sort of affection at a distance. But in terms of his engagement in my life, it, it, it always felt like when he gave advice or seemed to show concern, it felt more like uh, an, obliga an obligatory gesture because ultimately I knew that ultimately his concern was towards enlightenment and you know watching him work with other people throughout my life you know I, I there was a quality in which I was just one more person so in in his I think in his philosophy you know in 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 many things he ref referenced it was you know traditionally a lot of the sages or different teachers you know even Christ denied his parents you know and in, in his own relationship with his parents there was a quality of um a break in which you were sort of independent your path was your own so i think he afforded me a degree of uh respect in in as much as he saw my my choices he didn't agree with them um but it always felt like i was living a life concurrently like we weren't sharing a life i guess is what i'm getting at yeah that makes sense so so the inevitably the part of the you know the narrative question here is you know what happens when he comes back and from right. india discovers uh this whole situation and 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 also along with that is that how much when you got involved with with kai did you feel like you were breaking uh an unspoken boundary or whether, on the other hand, almost just as much you could see it as a, a full expression of the whole energetic Shakti trip in, that, that the whole thing was about. So there must have been a lot of, you know, how did you think about what, what was happening vis-a-vis -vis your father at the, at the time and then what happened when he came back? Well, you know, it's, it's funny you bring that up um, because I, I'm now recalling that that I that there was a definite concern on my part, and also uh, a fear, even within the processes that were unfolding. There was a I was curious to see what would happen in in direct proximity. I mean. Ostensibly in the lineage, it was like he's Kai's teacher. He awakens her Kundalini. She's having these incredible experiences. And then I'm in an interaction with her. Consequently, I'm having these experiences. And then, you know, there was a there was a still a lingering, also a this this 
you know, question of the father-son relationship as it's playing out within the ashram itself too. Like, would I, would there be an uh, egoic hesitation to sort to to worship him to to come to that that place? Would that would these kriyas lead me into a space of a direct uh, relationship with him as a student? So, you know. And yes, I did have reservations in the sense that, as I said, there was a conservative aspect that under it, I always joked that my father was ostensibly a tantric practitioner, but a closet Vedantist, you know, and, you know, there was, there was, there were jokes and, you know, when he would work with people, it was always like, you know, when you, you're in, you're, you've passed on and you're looking at your past 300 wives, which one are you going to run to? You know, there was a, in Muktananda had a little bit of that too, or your sexual energy was, was the, was the source of power and to lose a drop was the equivalent of losing, you know, the jewels that you've spent a lifetime accumulating. So that underwrote what was happening with Kai. Uh, and we were also trying to practice. We hadn't committed fully to uh, celibacy, you know, and also there was this incredibly delicious um, physical, emotional, spiritual connection that was, you know, profoundly sexual and also rooted in the practice as, as, as you can imagine. So it's, you know, we would both go into these states and then end up intertwined sexually. It wasn't necessarily in pursuit of the orgasm per se, but the sexual component felt like the center around which we were pivoting. Uh, and in any case, <clears throat> then, uh, yeah, my father came back and, and um, I think he was surprised and I often had the sense that throughout those years, I think he might have been as taken aback as anyone at the manifestations and how just outrageous some of these uh, scenarios became. I mean, I can recall, and, and when I talk about that period, it's, it's, it's as if within those experiences, it wasn't so, so in Kriya and those, in those practices, I wasn't doing anything, but there was still an, a self that was bearing witness. So it was still like Naropa watching Naropa, which was really odd. There was no eclipse of identity as much as there was a sense of self watching these experiences unfold as if, you know, I was a guest in my own body or that, that aspect of self, there was, there was a witness throughout these, the whole process. And that same witness then watched my body, you know, as it transformed into a cobra or spun on one toe, or, you know, essentially there were periods where my body was doing these yogic poses or these asanas that I couldn't do if I directed my body to do. 
or the sounds that were being emitted or, you know, and so then my father returned and then it sort of wasn't as big a deal as I thought. It just sort of continued under his watchful eye. Um, and I think for him, it must have been interesting. He didn't uh, express, you know, concern or dissatisfaction with Kai and I's relationship. Though, as I said, there was a strange dynamic in that she was devoted to him. And then by that point, our relationship had progressed. So it had become starting to have aspects that reflected a more traditional relationship. So, you know, I had to sort of defer to that her primary relationship, which was with my father. Um, you know, and it was, and I could see the impulse in me to want to push that and see where her allegiance was, so to speak. I could already feel some of those kind of power dynamics play out, you know, and, 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 and that being said, back to the, the, the question of my relationship to him, it's oddly enough, it didn't, it wasn't as if upon his return, something radically shifted and it was like the guru has returned and consequently the shakti transmissions sort of you know doubled down or there was a palpable increase in energy it was it was sort of just a continuation of what was already happening um with an added degree of self-consciousness about the fact that he was there that was slightly uncomfortable i would even say you know, well, you know, we we have a, an unfortunately a relatively small amount of time left, and and you know, I, I, I want to be able to have a little bit of time to ask from this perspective now, looking back at the stuff that happened decades ago. Um, one of the things that's always remark that that I've remarked on with your story is that you you had experiences that like thousands of seekers would would you know, give their, their pinky finger for, I mean, they, you know, people want that like authentic immersion in unquestionable, you know, Kundalini energy to think about it in, in those terms, but just these profound kind of spiritual awakenings. And obviously you can't help, but have some respect for these traditions because of just your own experiences, watching what happened. It wasn't like the ashram blew up in some horrible scandal or some terribly cheesy scene or you know anything evil or anything like that and yet your own life you know has has had a very complex relationship with spirituality obviously we can't go into that in the next you know we have got like five six minutes left but i did want you to reflect a little bit on after the fact how you sort of narrated these experiences how you saw them as part of a life that didn't stick to I mean, like, if you wanted to play the like I'm a tantric guru's guru son card, you could have totally played that all the way to the bank, you know. You, you <laughs> so, but you didn't do that, and and so how, that's the, the what I'd love to hear you reflect on a little bit is how having had these openings, you kind of integrated them and and also maybe resisted them or let them go as you went forward in a creative life of of art and music and and experience with people uh it's it's funny even within i think tantric philosophy there's there's a point at which you know all things 
are become the practice. It's funny, there's echoes in you know, like a post Duchamp or a post Cage kind of context where it's, it's all art, it's all music, it's all spiritual practice. And, and so I think the transition from that sort of rarefied closed world into the world at large has, there's, there's been a, a beautiful an ongoing uh, recognition of echoes and aspects uh, from the from those experiences and from those insights into the world at large. That you know, it's the the ritual exists potentially to bring you to the experience, and then one realizes you know that 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 it's all. There are aspects of ritual in 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 all these acts of making you know the bulbs. It becomes more of a Buddhist kind of practice of what you bring to you, how you rake the yard, how you you know interact with with um, other people, and and so you know I I I think I mentioned to you before. There's there's still I'm still mulling over what happened. It's still there, uh, and yet I don't have a formal practice. I don't feel compelled to. In fact, it seems sort of ridiculous in many regards to me at this point, because you know there's there's aspects. It's like even when you do the hundred and eight names of Durga or the thousand and eight names, it's it's that the Divine Mother exists as sleep. The Divine Mother exists as you know as um, conversation. Um, there's implicitly the, the idea is that the divine or this aspect of consciousness is within, you know, every experience. So there's nothing to do. There's no ongoing, I mean, everything continues to unfold, but I don't have a, a directive. I don't have an end goal per se. Uh, you know, it's it sort of hollowed out, it emptied out also in the process of, of the return to the world. It's, it's, it's sort of was uh, uh, reinvigorated. It was uh, re, you know, the, 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 the quality of the world. I love this idea that it's both illusion and isn't it's, it's I became much more comfortable with paradoxes with, you know, even in my relationship to to love, to to other people, there's I, I see how quickly we reach for an interpretive lens to assure us that like this is a spiritual practice. This is the this is how a relationship is supposed to exist. This is what is supposed to have meaning. Like I can't at this point my practice is very simply like every lens of interpretation I reach for, uh, I uh, slips through my fingers and, and reflexively almost, you know, so the, the, the practice is to be aware of that. And also sometimes to hold the lens a little longer so I can appreciate the minutia, you know, uh, I tend to be a systems thinker more than, than, than um, in the details. And, and so, I am finding more at this point, some of the details actually have a profound beauty, you know, in, in them. It's the mundane, it's, the, it's the, the kind of, you know, conversation you have with a guy who's, 
you know, a coal miner at the bar, and it turns out, you know, there's a profound spiritual search within him that could be echoed by someone who's been living in a, you know, in an ashram for 25 years. It's, it's the same story and in a different guise, you know. And then do you feel finally, just like we only got like a minute, but that you have, that you've, you've become aware since you've seen it for so long of that you have an unusual effect on certain people in the sense that even though it's completely outside of a formal religious practice situation that, that you still carry a certain kind of energy that, you know, whatever, dissolves things, puts new frames that are unexpected, uh, causes energetic reactions that would normally not be there. Have you watched your life in, in that light in some ways? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, be they strange coincidences, be it um, pushing people's buttons with, without, without intentionality, even by virtue of just a quality of experience or consciousness, there's, you know, I've, I've essentially am accustomed to being someone who galvanizes people or a, a figure of controversy, frankly. I mean, even <laughs> here in rural Colorado, it still exists. And, you know, and also being aware of that and, and doing diligence, to, you know, and being more adept at how to, 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 to help people's, um, uh, what would I say, uh, to, to play like a, maybe a bit of an informal, you know, uh, informal teacher without necessarily the, the certification and the, the, the right hat, I do find myself in, engaged in, in um, you know, those, those dynamics for sure. Well, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. This was a totally fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you, you know, digging into the, uh, the, the memoir books for it. So thanks a lot for, uh, for joining me on, a, on Expanding Mind. Thank you, Eric. It's, uh, it's uh, been a pleasure and, and <clears throat> I relish the, the opportunity to, to have you be the person that um, kind of unearths this, this story. <laughs> Great. Okay, folks, uh, until next week, keep your minds open.